Hello, I'm Christopher Lee, and this this is SITREP. SITREP, your defence and global affairs discussion on BFBS Radio. You're very welcome. Well, in the next 60 minutes, why the MI6 man blinked, why generals lacked the intellect for the Iraq war, why warheads on foreheads are doing the business, why we don't really want to get Osama bin Laden, why the war on climate change will be fought, possibly, with a gun, and why war of necessity has been crossed out of the White House phrasebook. And of course, and of course, this Tiger Woods moments. Now, Iraq inquiry week three. This week so far, the chiefs of staff and generals were, who were playing catch-up with American invasion plans and the head of IMI6, who seemed to hesitate and stuttered when asked if Tony Blair, after all the man who made sure he became controller SIS, had sexed up, then exaggerated what the intelligence people were telling him. But was it also the week when the Chilcot inquiry lost its bite? Following the week thus far for us, the BBC's political correspondent, Rob Watson. Rob, uh, Sir John Scarlett, until recently the control of MI6 at the time of the war, was chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee. So, I mean, he was the author, wasn't he? Or uh, chaired the authorship of the infamously known Dodgy Dossier. Well, he certainly would say that he was the main architect of it, that it was his fingers all over it, even though, of course, there were other parts of the intelligence service and, and the government that contributed to it. Was, uh, he said it wasn't under, he wasn't under a political uh, pressure to firm up the idea that Iraq could use weapons of mass, dis- sorry, weapons of mass destruction inside 45 minutes. Um, do you think that's true? Well, he he certainly wasn't pressed very hard on it, and perhaps we'll come to that in a minute, Christopher, but it it has been said by a number of commentators. I I think I liked Simon Jenkins, the way he put it in The Guardian, that it was all a bit like a a chat in a nice, comfortable Whitehall club. I mean, he he was asked, you know, did he feel under any pressure about the 45 minutes, Uh, and he just said no, but he didn't have a bunch of lawyers then clobbering him and asking him the same question in in a number of different ways. So all we have is, a simple answer to the to the question as put, but I could hardly say that he was harangued by the uh, by the inquiry. It's curious, isn't it? Because there were two particular uh, particular people on the inquiry. Uh, there's uh, Sir Lawrence Friedman, uh, professor at uh, King's College, who wrote the history, the official history of the Falklands War. Knows a few things about war studies. Um, there was uh, Sir Roderick Lyon, who sort of knows every answer to every question he asks, doesn't he? Yes. (laughs) Uh, But nobody pressed him. Why? Well, it's it's a very good question. I mean... (sighs) Look, there may be a chance, perhaps, that things will be slightly different in the in the sessions that will be private when they get into the weeds of some of the intelligence, but but maybe not. I mean, what what critics have said, uh, writing in the in the papers, Christopher, is that you know what do you expect? I mean, you've got a you've, you've got a, a commission, you've got a, a people on the committee on the inquiry who are all rather kind of matey and clubby and all sort of something to do with the government and academia and not really the ideal bunch to, to give uh, Sir John a, a roasting and so that was clearly not what happened indeed he seemed to he seemed to kind of, I don't know, he seemed to sort of drone his way through the whole process pretty effortlessly without uh, getting caught out. I mean, as you were hinting about the only bit where he was a bit uncomfortable was when he was asked and I'm not sure that discomfort is the right word, when he was asked whether, you know, the Prime Minister had sort of sexed it up and whether the 45 minutes thing in the foreword was entirely appropriate. Yeah, and that point, you have the sexy docu- uh, dossier, or the dossier itself, 
And then the key to that document, and the one that was reflected in what the Prime Minister, then Prime Minister Tony Blair, told the Commons, and I remember sitting there listening to him and thinking, mm. oh, that's, much, that's very firm, much firmer than I thought. It was the personal foreword written by Tony Blair and repeated to the MPs that John Scarlett stumbled over and wanted no part of it, did he? Uh, no, he didn't. He, he distanced himself from that uh, very clearly, saying this was, uh, as, far as, he th as far as he could see it, it was uh, a political, it should be seen in a political context. Although, again, when he was asked, do you think that it, you know, that it shouldn't have been there or it shouldn't have been put that way, I mean, about as, as strong as he went was maybe. The man that intrigues me is uh, uh, Lieutenant General Freddie Vigors. Um, and he said that lives have been lost as a result of senior officials, including ministers, needing more training to deal with the complexities involved in mounting an invasion. And he said, more or less, that they were amateurs. That's quite damning. Oh, it was very damning. And I'm not sure if, if, if any, of, any of those with you in the studio today, Christopher, know uh, Freddie Vigors or any of the people listening, but he's a real soldier. Soldier. He's very blunt. He's been in the thick of lots of things, uh, quite prominently with General Mike Jackson over the years. He, he's a very sort of straightforward kind of guy, and uh, you know, and essentially what he said to the to the to the committee, what he said to the inquiry was was very very damaging indeed. That this was run by a bunch of amateurs. That there was nobody, none of the ministers, none of the senior civil servants. That no, nobody seemed to have any idea about what invading Iraq had let themselves in for. And you know, I think he feels this very very deeply and passionately as an army man through and through because he, he was there from sort of May. Uh, through to September, so just as things started to get really nasty. And, and, you know, the kind of picture that he paints is of you call London to try and find out what to do, and, and the phone is dead. There's no minister in charge. And I think his point is that you can't entirely blame the Americans for that. I mean, after all, he had a, a British chain of command, and he didn't get much from that chain of command. And, and, and again, another worrying thing in, the, in his testimony was that he fears that the same thing is happening in Afghanistan. Right. Um, I remember going around uh, asking people and they, uh, what was going on and how I should judge it. And they said, listen to what General Freddie has to say. Now, that's still the case, isn't it? Yes. I, I mean, I think he's highly respected. He's highly respected in, in military circles. I think he's highly respected by the politicians and, and civil servants he's met him. And he, and he is, to use an Americanism, uh, appropriate perhaps in this context, a true straight shooter. I mean, I think he just feels that it's just not good enough, or it just wasn't good enough, to send people into harm's way in Iraq and, and not to have more of a plan. And again, that is a theme that's been echoed throughout these last two or three weeks with with civil servants, with diplomats saying there was just this wrong-headed, hopeful optimism about Iraq that a lot of the generals, uh, and Freddie among them, were, were saying that's just nuts, you know, we're, we're certainly on for the invasion, the British Army is capable of dealing with that, but for goodness sake, has anyone thought about what's going to happen when Saddam Hussein falls? And, and, and again, one goes back to this point of Afghanistan, one can still, one can hear in Freddie's testimony, and one hears it from from other military sources, that there is still that same sense around that they have about the, the Ministry of Defence and the politicians, that you still find it very, very difficult to get through to someone who, who really has a feel for how a campaign works and how you actually win things rather than just manage them. Right.
Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Well, with me at the set round table, Royal Marine Major General Gillian Thompson, Professor Eric Grove. From the, I always get this wrong, Eric, from the... Centre for International Security and War Studies. Our sponsor tells us, yes. And the Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, <laughs> Michael Cogner. Um, General Vigors uh, says direction lagged, lacked intellectual stamina. Uh, very simple, politicians and senior officials not up to running a war, uh, Julian. Not entirely surprising. Doesn't surprise me, and I, I echo what uh, Rob said about him. Uh, I met him, and he's a very impressive person with a, a huge amount of experience and a straight talker. And I think one of the problems uh, that we've got uh, in, in this country is there is no strategic direction. Uh, and I think we're going to run up against this problem uh, in the future when we come to the strategic so called defense review that we're going to run into. I don't think there's a plot, quite frankly, and that. Um, if you like, flows down to how you run a war like Iraq and how you run a war like Afghanistan. Right. Uh, Michael Codner, I mean, given the importance of a, your organisation, like as a think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, uh, holding, it seems to me, almost monthly seminars on how you should do exactly this sort of thing, how you should think things through, who's not listening then? Well, I think um, I, I agree entirely with uh, with the um, comments about Freddie Vigors, but I would say he's a very sharp soldier, <laughs> not a blunt one. Mm. Um, but, uh, but, but what I would say is, I mean, there are two parts to this. One is, uh, yes, uh, Britain doesn't have strategy. We don't have governments who do strategy, and no doubt um, uh, Eric here will <laughs> have a lot more to say on that subject, you know, the muddling through and all of that. But the other issue is, of course, uh, the relationship between the very senior military and government. Now, you're asking where the expertise should lie. Well, it should lie with the very senior military, CDS, uh, heads of service, etc. Um, and the government should be listening to them. You can't expect politicians to be experts, but they must have the right dialogue. And that seems to me to be a big problem. On the one hand, there is the military um, uh, attitude of tell us what to do sir by god we do it because that's important to sustaining force levels and on the other there is uh, perhaps uh, a, a lack of true respect um, on, on the other and i think this is um, this is an important issue eric we, we, um, some people have criticized the iraq inquiry the chilcott inquiry as uh, nothing more than not necessarily a whitewash but a very simple history story but the truth is something like this um, brings to the public's mind what friends, people like uh, General Freddie Vickers thinks. It raises questions about our very understanding of strategic planning and strategic thinking. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I mean leaving the, uh, um, this uh, scarlet on one side, as it were, I thought, I, I thought on the whole that the inquiry has done rather well in actually bringing these things forward, and some in interesting things were said in the first week. And, I mean, it's uh, not just sort of for the aficionado, then? Not, not, not really, no. Although, I mean, I mean although I, th I think an aficionado can have hours of harmless fun watching the feed, but, but uh, because, in a sense, you, 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 you know of the people, you know the people, and, you, and you're, you're, you're quite sort of looking forward to hearing what he or she eventually is going to say. But I think this political-military interface is very important. Thinking about the Falklands War, um, 
it was. It, I suppose that the strategy was was relatively simple. But I remember Terry Lewin telling me that who was, fact, then, who was Admiral, then who was then who was then chief, chief of defence staff, saying that the great thing was that Mrs. Thatcher didn't think she knew anything about military affairs, and she let the pros get on yeah. with it, and that was actually quite a good way of running that war, uh, um, and it and it and it worked. Nowadays, of course, she still demanded though political satisfaction, and people got on with the war rather than leaving it to them to fight it. Well, I mean, th- th- actually, I think the heads of the armed services and the and the task force commander actually handled handled. And this is actually extremely well. I mean, they gave her something that she couldn't refuse when they sort of manoeuvred her into approving the sinking of the Belgrano. And um, but but I think we're under Blair, it was very very different. Here was policy being made on the sofa in Downing Street, um, policy which was effectively mendacious, and therefore you were trying to appear to to be doing something which, which you actually weren't, or in fact you were trying to appear not to be planning an invasion of, of Iraq when you should have been, and hence the planning was extremely poor. And I think there was a tendency too that, well, let's not think about this too much, perhaps we don't actually like what we're doing deep down, you know, but we have to do it to keep in with the Americans. Can I turn, Gillian, Thompson, who after all was driving three brigade during the Falklands. Well, I wasn't going to hark on the Falklands. I was going to say, I think what one of the things that's lacking, there used to be a thing called the Defence and Overseas Policy Committee. Yes. Met the Prime Minister regularly, once a month at least, and sometimes more often, which consisted of the Chiefs of Staff and representative from the Foreign Commonwealth Office. And they sat down and minutes were taken and they discussed papers that had been agreed by the Chiefs of Staff before they went in. It wasn't on the sofa stuff. It was done right. properly. And I hear, and I've been told, that that policy committee no longer exists. There is a thing called DOP-I, which stands for I'm not quite sure what, which only consists of the, the CDS and one or two other people. And I, I understand it's not taken as seriously as the DOPC was, and I think that is one of the Very problems. important, very and important. And this is that. why, uh, Michael, Michael Cotton, is, is this why uh, we have people as senior and as astute as General Vigors will say, listen, we went to war without this understanding without this expertise, which was readily available if you put it in the right context. Yes, there is the other issue that whatever expertise we had and however uh, well informed the Prime Minister was, whether uh, the actual um, players in this game, which were the Americans, would listen to what they have to say. And that's, um, and that's another level of issue which is um, critical to all of what actually happened. Right, let me get to another level, another issue of the Iraq war. It surfaced on Tuesday with a report written by the uh, Conservative MP, Adam Holloway. Now, his report uh, for first defence suggests that military advice was matched to, and I quote, the prevailing political wind, which is what we've been talking of in the run-up to the invasion. Uh, Mr Holloway is not to be discarded. He was in the Grenadiers and he's on the House of Commons Defence Committee and he chairs the defence think tank first defence, and he's on the line. Um, The failure of British political and military leadership, uh, which is the title of this paper, um, what was the fault in the military bit of the leadership? I think the problem has been that that the the decision to go to war in um, Iraq was made by by George Bush and Tony Blair alone at uh, at the Bush Ranch in Crawford, Texas, and it it was only after the decision had been made for them to go to war that uh, the military became involved. So the military were kind of given a sort of fait accompli. This is what they had to they had to do. It, it is always thus. But what's happened because there were always limited resources um, from after the invasion anyway. The, 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 the intention was always to try to scale down the numbers. 
But the, the people at the very top of the MOG were increasingly politicised because they had to sell... Including the military? Possible, including the military, oh yeah, I mean, the, the people at the very, very top of the military. But very, very much so. I mean, they were, they, 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 they were concerned to fulfil the will of their political masters far more than to, to actually succeed in the operation in hand, in my view. And what, I mean, what happens when you get on the ground, uh, let's say, uh, when the operation started into Iraq? Are you suggesting that people were seeing this in a political sense, in almost a political sense, this is a way of making a bigger career for yourself? Well, no, I mean, I think, I think the actual invasion, you know, as you'd expect, you know, the, the guys and the, you know, all the way up to the generals got on with it, did a fantastic job. But after that, it was all about cutting force numbers. It was never really about dealing with the, with the insurgency of the Jaysh al-Mahdi. It was never really um, serious about providing services as is our duty to occupying power. Um, and this was... This was the problem. I mean, I, mean I, I shall never forget arriving in Mosul, the, the northern oil city, just uh, literally in the hour that the regime had collapsed there. And I went to the, the big police station. There were loads of sort of Saddam lookalikes uh, in this police station. I, I went up to the police brigadier or colonel or whatever he was, and I said, look, where's, where are the Americans? He said, oh, down at the airfield. So, so, he, so I said, I, he gave me directions to the airfield. And then, then just before I left, I said, um, he said to me, uh, if you see the Americans... Would you ask them to tell us what they would like us to do? Remember, this is Saddam's police force. So I get down to the Americans, and I say to the American colonel or major or whatever um, what I had to say, and then the police want to know what you want them to do. And am I allowed to use bad language on your program? We always do. Well, basically, the, the American colonel or major said to me, you can tell the police chief to go F himself. And this was the problem. The Americans had it. And to some extent, we had it. We didn't have a proper plan. And I don't think anyone at the MOD, apart from perhaps General Cross and others we don't know about privately, but nobody really said, look, are we serious about dealing with the insurgency in Basra? And in the end, of course, we weren't. And it was the Iraqi government themselves that had to sort it out. You make a very good point about, uh, in your report, um, I think that, military commanders, and I'm quoting here, military commanders could not take a long-term view as they only spent six months in the job and no significant intelligence database was built. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the thing, Chris, that I find worrying about it um, is that this is what's sort of happening in Afghanistan as well. Now, you know, the guys who are listening to, to your program, you know, six months is well enough for them because I know they're working so hard. But the problem is, is that, that people in sort of key command positions, um, you know, the, say the brigade headquarters, they, they literally, they are there for six months and then they are gone. So every time you have a, a, a rotation of a brigade, institutional memory literally flies out of the country. Tell me about that occasion when you were getting a briefing as part of the uh, HCDC, the House of Commons Defence Committee, and you bumped into a chum of yours you've been at Santos with, and he just wanted to put the record straight. Yeah, it was extraordinary. So we had this briefing. It was in uh, 2006, just after 16 Brigade had arrived. And, you know, it was one of these sort of, you know, everything's going well sort of briefings that we've come rather too used to. And at the end of it, this friend of mine, he's a, with the battle group commander, grabbed me. We went around the back of this hangar for a Marlboro Light. And uh, he said to me, um, said to me, Adam, I, do, you know, I just can't believe it. I mean, they've, they've been giving you all this stuff about reconstruction. Well, let me tell you, you know, our five platoon houses, 
in heavy contact today. We've got a dead soldier whose body we can't retrieve. The Americans have just dropped a 500-pound bomb somewhere that it was rather unhelpful and without reference to us. And, and, and then he said, you know, anyway, they're telling you, giving you the good news about reconstruction, but, you know, I haven't seen any. So, mm. so I mean, I suppose my headline is that, you know, the, the, our troops ha in Iraq and, you know, right now in Afghanistan are performing absolutely magnificently. And that's not a cliche, it's the truth. The problem is, I think, that at times we, the, the political classes and, and the people at the very top of the MOD, have, have let them down because, you know, we haven't always got the strategy right. Um, and, you know, what we really need to do is what the Americans have done, which is have a hard look at the way that we have been conducting ourselves so that we make sure that we get the strategy absolutely right. Adam Holloway, thank you very much for joining us. Um, let's stay with Iraq, Eric. The bombings on Tuesday, 127 uh -huh. killed on that day. Others have died uh -huh. of their wounds since. Um, others with terrible wounds. I mean, we're talking mm. about 500 people, 500 casualties here. Um, it's the third such attack since August, mm -hmm. all in the name of al-Qaeda. At the same time, uh, it's the same al-Qaeda that General Stanley McChrystal says in, uh, <coughs> on Capitol Hill cannot be defeated until Osama bin Laden is taken out, dead or alive. Is this really true? Well, not really, because... Al-Qaeda is as much a sort of an inspiration as an organisation. He called it a franchise. Yes, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But I think it's actually vaguer than that. I mean, I think there are people who call themselves this and they're sort of inspired by, you know, by, uh, by, by the sort of jihadi uh, propaganda. Um, of course, the problem is that if you do take out Osama bin Laden, um, he, he, he just becomes a super martyr. And it's a, t a terrible problem, actually. I mean, what do you do with somebody like that who might welcome being killed? Because he doesn't organise the attacks. He doesn't organise Well, I'm not sure he'd be welcome being killed, but I can, say, well, I actually, can take no, your I'm, point. I'm not so sure, actually. After all, you know, he's, Mental uh, uh, he's got the virgins to look forward to, etc. If, if he's, if he's, if, well, we've all got that, <laughs> but we don't want to, we want to be killed and tempted at the moment. Michael, um, Michael Codney, the, um this idea of martyrdom, um, we don't really understand it, do we? And yet there is so much history of somebody becoming a martyr uh, to a cause or getting a new image. I mean, in, in American terms, look at Billy the Kid. Uh, absolutely. One thing I would say over this issue of um, we can't let him become a martyr uh, um, would be that it depends who you're talking to. Now, there are certainly large numbers of Muslims who would look to martyrdom, but at the same time, a major event, a defining event of the death of Osama bin Laden for all sorts of other communities who are involved in support or who may be wanting to go down the same lines, uh, this certainly could be seen globally as uh, an, an indication of progress. I think on balance it would be a good thing in that, in that sense. When I heard, um, Gillian Thompson, when I heard um, Robert Gates, the American Defence Secretary, saying we haven't had uh, proper intelligence about the whereabouts of Osama bin Laden for years, I sat there and watched him giving that evidence and I thought to myself, and he doesn't want to find him. Well, I don't think he does. I, I actually agree with Eric. I don't think killing him produces the answer. It, it would be nice, if you like, to tick him off, put him off on, on the wanted list, you know, with a big line through him. But the, the risk of sounding blasphemous, Christianity is headed up by a dead martyr, isn't it? Yeah. 
Exactly. And, and it's a religious thing. You're just killing him. Isn't In other words, you're saying you can kill a man, but you can't kill um, an, idea. an idea. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And is that, Michael, you look sceptical. But, but the idea isn't the only thing that sustains uh, the problem at the moment with, um, well, it's not just at the moment, the continuing problem of uh, the terrorism, insurgency, um, there's all the issues of dispossessed populations, everything else, which are seeded, but they're not necessarily, mm. this is not the only issue. And if this takes out one catalyst or at least contributes to taking out one catalyst in the wide perceptions of the dispossessed in their own yes. um, perceptions of themselves, um, then uh, I can't help thinking that this would be progress, or could be progress. I, mean, I think it's acknowledged that one of the biggest mistakes we made was in 1916, was killing all four of those guys who, who were fighting in the, in the post office in Dublin. Exactly. Yeah, they were yeah. spat on by Pierce the crowd. and co. Yeah. Oh. And then when they were shot, they, of course, they became martyrs, and they've remained martyrs in song and fable ever since. Yes, and one of them had to be tied to a seat because he couldn't, he yeah, was so wounded, he couldn't exactly. stand up to be shot. But that's a very close, uh, contained and describable It's martyrs culture. against the state, isn't it, in rather than a well, worldwide yeah. movement. Yes, uh, well, worldwide um, and extremely dispersed yeah. um, movement. Julian, I want to move on. Uh, well, it's not quite a, a different subject, but uh, thinking about Pakistan, um, I hadn't heard the expression warheads on foreheads. Had you heard that uh, before? It was an American expression, apparently. And uh, two weeks ago in Pakistan, the Central Intelligence Agency sharpshooters, as I told they were, killed eight people suspected of being militants of t Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And they, I think they wounded two others in a compound. Um, and somebody said to me, yep, that's warheads on foreheads. It's not uh, single-shot rifles. This is a CIA supposedly covert program to uh, kill anybody they can using Hellfire missiles. Uh, this has been one of the most successful uh, attacks on Taliban, Al-Qaeda perhaps even, uh, of, of this whole conflict. Yes, it has. The problem with it is, of course, that it, it risks um, being head headlined as, as Americans running in and killing people in our country. And, and if you kill the wrong person, innocent children and so which on... Which has been what's which, happening Which has well. been what's happened, you, you, you run into a problem. But on the whole and on balance, it's better than trying to parachute or helicopter operatives in who are then maybe taken prisoner or wounded and have to be extracted, and you have all the performance that goes with that. It's a, it's a better way of doing it. Do you remember Hot Pursuit, the argument about that in Northern Ireland? Indeed. You couldn't cross the border, <laughs> but if you'd had a hellfire, you could have probably done it. But the, in, in fact, the importance of this, Eric, mm -hmm. isn't it, is that the technology is there. Absolutely. And it's going to be used more and more, because I see um, that the White House has authorised an expansion of the... CIA's um, predator aircraft, mm -hmm. uh, 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 which offensive. are based in Pakistan, actually, interestingly enough. And what the aircraft themselves? Or yes, the because they were super, uh, the drones base. Yes, I mean that a base has been photographed. Where's it controlled from? I can't remember. It's in the states, isn't it? Yeah, yes. It's interesting the extent to which the Pakistani government helps helps the CIA and other American forces. But, of course, it has to deny it because it knows that that's very unpopular. Yes, it has to walk a very difficult tightrope. They're taken off by a local, a local oh. com controller who takes yeah. them off yes. and then hands over to the guy in the middle of the Mojave Desert or somewhere like that. Yeah, New Mexico. It New does Mexico. depend on the particular um, yeah. uh, unmanned vehicle, uh, some of the smaller ones which are directed direct, um, in theatre by the people who need them, um, yeah. and, and, uh, but there is um, a, a huge activity uh, back in the States. That's, um, but the idea um, of taking the war into Pakistan, 
that would have been unthinkable, let's say, in 2001 when this this offensive started. It was no way you can go into Pakistan. But with the offensive that the Pakistan uh, military has first in the Swat Valley and now in uh, Waziristan, this becomes more acceptable, Michael? Well, yes, if it's seen as um, coordinated with the, the government of Pakistan and things like uh, using Predator, if you can, in subtle ways, de describe the control and ownership in a common way that both are taking part in this, mm. then, of course, it makes it all much easier rather than it's the Americans coming in and doing this <coughs> against the will of the Pakistani people. Um, it, these things can be... Which is a dangerous perception. Of actually. course. Yes. Mm. But, but if you even have some photographs of these things taking off in Pakistan, not even if all of them do, that certainly helps, doesn't it? I noticed when there was TV, TV coverage a few weeks ago of, a, of an important Pakistani offensive, without any comment, a predator flew right, th right, right through the picture. Really? And, and, and that, wasn't, that wasn't a Pakistani-owned aircraft. Yes. Perhaps Sky News uh, editors didn't spot it. Uh, there's a warning to them, isn't it? Hey? Listen, I want to talk, talking about um, changes, uh, Jill, I want to try you on this one. Um, yesterday, um, Wednesday, the Army formally established its new three-star structure. Three new commands, Commander Field Army, Commander Force Development and Training, Personnel and Support Command, which is the old Adjutant General. Yeah. Thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, what will this do for the army? Well, I suppose it tidies up the edges in the, in, in that the commander field army will have his fingers on things that are happening abroad in a way that perhaps uh, land, as it was called, was strictly supposed to be just looking at what the army did in the UK. So, in a, in a sense, the commander field army will replicate, I suppose, what the old fleet command in the Navy, used to, uh, which is now called Naval Command, I think. So he'll spread his wings a bit, or spread his boots a bit, yeah. out into, into areas which... He'll well, his he wings did, as well, he, he can get his hands his on aircraft. Well. Indeed. And then force development will be looking at how you produce the forces to do this. And, so and, training. And training, of course. And then personnel support command, very important. All the, th all the important things like people and things... Yes, but what the sec second sea lord used to yeah. do, uh, Eric. But there's still this uneasy interface, I think, which which began when the permanent joint headquarters was set up. You know, they have this we have this joint operational command, and you have these commands within the services. And it always seemed to me, I I wish I'd asked the question when Michael Portillo launched this. You know, isn't there a problem here? I mean, how does this interface with fleet? How does this in interface with the uh, with the uh, with the air force and army? And army equivalents, because you have this sort of command structure within the service, if you like, and you've got the joint headquarters, and I think that that's that there is potentially a difficulty there. Michael, I think the two issues here. One is the one that, um, that that's already been mentioned, and that is strengthening the service operational headquarters uh, is seen as important because of the creep of jointery. The permanent joint headquarters sooner or later having a three-star permanent, uh, sorry, a four-star permanent command with all the single service uh, commands in chief being merely supporting commanders or component commanders is a sort of long-term vision for those who are mm. obsessed with jointery. Tell me. And you have to defend this. The other one is uh, issue of doctrine and development in particular. The army lost its two-star director general of doctrine and development when the uh, doctrine and development headquarters was um, reformed under Admiral Parry. Um, and w that activity was incorporated in there. That takes away from the army a lot of control 
over its ideas and the way it influences concepts which then produce equipment and capabilities and all of that. They've really started to seize that back. Well, in fact, in this step, they've seized that back in a big way, intellectually grabbing back from the centre uh, how you think about land forces. And this has big implications for being able to keep yeah. the forces that you need as a single service. Julian, as somebody who's you know, sort of commanded like this, how come, without being too sort of pointy-head about how things are done, how come it's taken the services, or the army in particular, so long to do such a logical thing? Well, because what happened, as, as, as Michael said, is everyone went overboard for jointery. Now, I'm, I'm a great believer in jointery, but you can become almost too joint to the degree that you sort of forget that there are a lot of people out there who are the components of jointery. And you've got to get the balance right between being so joint that you just say, get on with it, I'm not really interested in what you're doing, just do it. Mm. And the other, which is, it's all mine, I'm not going to let you have any part of it. And it's the, <coughs> the fine line you've got to tread all the time between making certain that the operation is truly joint, but all the participants are able to give of their best because they are able to do so because they're commanded and, and structured in that way. Right. We're late. It's uh, 4.32. You're listening to Sit Rep from BFBS Radio with me, Christopher Lee. If you've missed anything so far, just go to bfbs.com forward slash sit rep and listen again or podcast, whatever you like. Sit Rep Overheard now. It's part of the programme. We think aloud about things that concern you but don't always come on your radar. With me still, Major, uh, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, Professor Eric Grove and Michael Codner from the RUSI. Now, let's talk about Copenhagen. Everybody else has been talking about Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, and climate change all this week because the Climate Change Summit has opened. Um, at first sight, what climate change has to do with the business of the military may be a little obscure, but it shouldn't be. There's a case for just suggesting that climate change could become a threat multiplier, which exacerbates existing trends, tensions, and maybe instability. But there has to be a starting point for this supposition. Uh, on the line, one of the most consistent voices, I hope you didn't mind me saying that, and pens to draw attention to man-made climate change, George Monbiot. May I quote something at you? And it's, it's even if you were to exclude every line of evidence which could possibly be disputed, the proxy records, the computer models, the complex science of clouds and ocean currents, the evidence for man-made global warming would still be unequivocal. Why would scientists still dis dispute it then, uh, George Monbiot? Well, um, scientists don't really. Um, there's a very small group of people who, I mean, really, you can number them on fingers of one hand, who have a climate science qualification who dispute the science, but it turns out that in all cases they've been receiving money from the fossil fuel industry. So they can't really be considered um, objective, independent voices. Um, amongst scientists, there really is no significant dispute that man-made global warming is taking place. Right. I mean, the non-scientific evidence is strongest, isn't it? I mean, I look at weather patterns, melting glaciers and ice caps. We can see it on television, but it's still disputed. Well, it's disputed, but not among scientists. And the, the great media debate about whether climate change is taking place or not is not reflected in any similar debate in the scientific journals. It's... I, I have to say that a lot of the problem is that very few people who um, run or work for media organizations have science degrees. And, and a lot of 
journalists find it very difficult to um, grasp um, where the science is at and what scientific papers mean and the status that scientific papers have over, say, articles for a newspaper. Do you know, I mean, this is the whole point, is it, articles for a newspaper, because most of us, most of us on the ground look around and we say, well, look, what am I supposed to believe? Um, and therefore we have to rely on, as a general term, the media to explain this to us. But if you're suggesting that, by and large, the media don't, quite often don't understand it themselves. That's the real problem. And the truth is the media don't understand very much you could see the same with the financial crisis that a lot of the people who should have been keeping tabs on the city and should have been working out what those bankers were up to really didn't understand collateralized debt obligations and methanine um, um, derivatives instruments and stuff like this i mean i don't understand it but it's not my field but you know very few people at all understood it and one of the real democratic problems we have these days is complexity now you can't help complexity societies become more complex as they evolve as the division of labor increases as people specialize more and more but it does shut us out of the debate and it does mean that the great majority of people really don't have much ability to engage with the issues because they sound like gobbledygook and 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 so being able to form an independent judgment well it takes years of reading sometimes to get your head around a subject and people don't have that kind of time so the media i think does have a special responsibility to employ specialists who can understand this stuff and to try to present it to people in as clear and objective way as possible the problem is that the media has its own interests and most of the newspapers for instance are owned by billionaires or by large corporations who don't necessarily have the same interest as everybody else on Earth. What's good for billionaires is generally pretty bad for other people. And so there's not even an incentive to do it properly, let alone the ability. George Monbiot, thank you very much for explaining that. Uh, now, I mean, while George Monbiot was talking about that and the fact that only scientists really ought to be explaining it, uh, I have to say, a non-scientist, uh, Eric Grove, was sort of fidgeting. With an, interest, fidgeting. With an interest in science and somebody who has looked at the figures. The figures have demonstrated that in three years after, I think, 05, the world got cooler. Um, and yes, scientists... It, it doesn't appear in the journals, because the journals are run by the carbon warmists, as I call them. Um, carbon what? Ca carbon warmists. It's a, it is a they? religion rather than science, so I think it ought to be called something like a religion. Uh, the, uh, people like the fundamentalists... Or a sect. Just, uh, people like the fundamentalist we've just heard who was talking in my opinion absolute tosh and in fact the the everything he said is questionable there are several scientists against it as was explained by a very uh, by um, a climate scientist last week it's like an inverted pyramid all this carbon warmism rests on a few papers it also rests on falsification of data and now we know that from the from the emails it is it is an emperor with no clothes copenhagen is a wonderful place to have it. Hans, Hans, Hans Anderson would have had a field day with this. Right. Anybody else feel strongly? Well, I, I, I support totally what Eric says, and interestingly, though they weren't scientists, they were just plain ordinary Royal Marines. There are no such things, surely. Um, two Royal Marines canoed the Northwest Passage this year, and to their surprise and alarm, they found that the ice was 99.0% thicker than it should have been at this time of year. No one takes any notice of that, because uh, they're not scientists, you see. Right. Michael? 
Uh, I'm totally behind George Monbiot on this. And I, I would say one needs to appreciate the difference between short-term fluctuations and long-term trends. Uh, well, I would also make the point to Eric, because uh, Eric, uh, Eric is a naval scholar that it's in his own interest if with global warming and well, a lot more water oh, no. a lot more water you'd have no, a bigger if this, job if this <laughs> if exactly right no and i've often argued that 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 if 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 we are if we do have a strong warming trend. More sea, absolutely right. The Arctic melts, fantastic. We can have a conflict over more it. Canoeing more canoeing for our marines. Yeah. But, you see, but, but Julian's right. The evidence is going the opposite way, and the evidence is ignored. I it's, began to get doubts about this when I spoke to somebody who will have to be nameless, a meteorologist who worked for the office and said, I'm so, well, he had data that was against it, but he wasn't allowed to publish it. And, in fact, the other interesting thing, of course, is that if all this money is spent on windmills that don't work. There won't be any money to spend on defence and so it won't matter how much water there is because we won't be able to afford the ships to sail on them. I mean, the climate changes all the time for for whatever reason. Uh, I, I, it was warmer in 1939-40 in the Arctic because the Germans, thanks to their Soviet allies, were able to move ships, ships uh, like the Atlantis, their commerce raiders, along the passage without icebreaker support. But and the so, glaciers didn't all melt to the small, uh, to the huge amount they have done in recent past. Well, that's, that could well be for other reasons, but uh, but 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 certainly, if you look at the temperatures, the uh, the evidence it seems to me when it hasn't been doctored is uh, is uh, is, uh, uh, is difficult to interpret in the direct and simplistic way that the carbon warmest do. They, they are very dangerous people, in my opinion. It seems to me that what we actually need is a chill-cot inquiry into this. But, <laughs> in the do. meantime, listening to all that, on the line is Andrew Dorman, who's Senior Lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College. Uh, Andrew, I was putting forward this notion that man-made climate change, or, or made by whoever, could become as a threat multiplier which exacerbates existing trends, tensions and inst instabilities in certain parts of the world. Would you go along with any of that? Well, if we, if we assume that climate change is a threat, and obviously there's a d d d debate amongst the uh, people in the London, etc., then it will create issues. Um, if, see, like if, for example, um, the levels of water uh, and sea rises, that impacts upon some nations. There'll be debates and arguments about resources um, and potential rivalry there. So it's, it's a potential both for um, conflict and also for opportunities. I mean, the security aspect could be uh, in this whole debate, and it's not very big uh, part of the debate, but the security aspect could uh, be a diversion, couldn't it? A time when I suppose most nations are fed up with cases for inflicting solutions on other states. Uh, they are, but if we're seeing climate change, and you could say some of the arguments linking to climate change, for example, if we look at um, piracy going off the Somali coast at the moment, one of the arguments about that is about climate change, link, links between climate change and overfishing. Uh, the fishermen have become pirates. The impact then on the on economies of the world is potentially is quite significant if they start to significantly impact upon the um, sea routes and supplies coming both into Western Europe and Europe and out from Europe. So the, the, the dilemma with it all is between short-term and long-term threats and challenges. Um, we can always focus on the short-term, what's the problem now, but we've also got to look ahead. And climate change could be one of those areas which has a significant impact in the future. Is anybody looking ahead that far, or as far as they, they can do? Uh, we have in the past seen a defence looking ahead, which has previous defence reviews have looked 
10, 15, up to 30 years ahead. Indeed, if you look at the Australian recent defence review, you looked up to 2036. Um, the problem with all this futurology is one thing you're guaranteed, whatever you predict, invariably doesn't happen. Um, invariably is wrong. But if you don't predict and get, start to try and look where you want to go, it makes real problems for your procurement process in terms of buying equipment. For example, if you think about, well, your Eurofighter's coming into service at the moment, the initial thinking behind that um, and the initial specification for it started out in the early 1970s. It takes time to... When you had a Cold War? Yeah. It takes time to develop one. and think about these things and, get, and prepare yourselves for them. That's right. And listening yesterday, for example, to the, uh, the Chancellor uh, giving his, uh, his pre-budget forecast, you think, well, let's say the strategic planners have got quite a lot to think about immediately without thinking that far ahead uh, and the effects of climate change. Yes, I mean, it's, it's naturally easier, particularly when you're in the economic recession, to, um, to look towards the short term and the immediate problems. Um, but as we know, um, there's also the question of prudence about looking ahead, because if climate change is as bad as it's predicted by some, then the problems will be that much worse, and therefore the earlier you deal with these things, the better. Right. Andrew Dorman, thank you very much for joining us. Can um, I make a, his a historical point, as a historian? Eric Graham. On the whole, On the whole, periods of warming have been happy periods of human history and stable periods. No, Roman warming, the Roman warming and the medieval warming were periods of stability. When things start getting colder, you get epidemics, you get... Uh, more famines, you get more conflict, more and, you can, and you can actually plot in a general way if you if you believe the older climatologists before it became fashionable to come up with the hockey stick graph. Actually, there is a strong impact between climate and security and climate and human events. But actually, warmings are generally happy periods, coolings are generally much less happy. Michael, can I throw that one to you? Because it strikes me that if we're going if we're going back two thousand years or a thousand years, however far we go back, and we say, well, you know, warm was, warm was good for you. It was a different world entirely, a far less complex world, to a, a, a world that didn't react in the same way. Yes, I'm also all for drawing lessons from history, uh, from insights from history, but not necessarily lessons from history, particularly yes. when there is this... Um, this uh, <clears throat> uh, all these other aspects to do with the very different worlds. I mean, uh, regardless of... Uh, whether it's getting hotter or getting colder, uh, in both cases, um, Eric has suggested that there are um, potentially um, crises for us to face, and we I need to pursue the warming series of uh, of of um, of. Um, uh, events and situations that could come from warming. We can pursue the uh, the chilling ones as well, uh, if one likes. But just looking at the warming ones, we've got population movement, uh, we've got um, comp competition for resources, which Andrew Dorman's already mentioned. Um, uh, the Arctic in particular opening up and a whole business of control of the sea in the Arctic and nations competing for that. And that's certainly happening to the extent that um, you can do it now, even if it's only in canoes. But let me let me try but, something. I mean, actually, piracy has nothing to do mm. with climate change. I mean, that is a total red herring. Piracy is because, or in off Somaliland, because they they could see their waters being fished by Korean and and other nations um, uh, fishermen, and they went and grabbed a couple of them. They suddenly thought, this is a good idea. We can use this as motherships to do to carry out piracy, and it's all it's all like opportunism, and it's to do with a complete failed state. It's nothing to do with global Okay, warming. well, uh, failed states, I mean, I would ask the question, um, uh, Eric, uh, can we prove, or is there any proof of climate change 
can threaten to overburden states and regions which are already conflict-prone and fragile? Well, there is a connection between climate and human affairs, politics and, and movements of people, and you can see it historically. As I said, I mean, there have been periods when the climate did change for the worse, and this had serious effects on the stability of major empires. And I'm surprised Mike actually... Uh, uh, saying that the Roman world was simple. I mean, he knows more about the Roman no, world I than that. I do. I did but it was, say that. Uh, Christopher said I said that, that. <laughs> yes. But it was... But, but it was, it was uh, because... And I was because right. It, uh, uh, he's a real expert on this. Uh, the... the, the um, yes, there are connections, but, I mean, and if we do get warmer, there will be things that we ought to be concerned about. But I think we ought to be concerned about it, not so much in terms of the climate change and the causes of it, but dealing with the problems and getting greater stability, uh, uh, confidence-building measures, all these kinds of things, uh, rather than try thinking that if we have more windmills and we burn less, less, less fuel... And, of course, actually, if we are burning less fuel, there's going to be less of a competition for resources, isn't there? Yeah. If we what all about, stop burning the fuel... Can we... Can we, can we <laughs> Eric's very pleased with himself at the moment. Uh, Mike, okay, I feel quite strongly about this, actually. You certainly do, and we're all very, very satisfied that you do. Um, I, what I really want to know is this question of mass migration, because usually when there's mass migration, there is a cause, uh, and the effect, Michael, can be beyond our control, always has been. And if you can get that as a result of a change in the climate, whether it's man-made, whether scientists agree about it, the causes or not, uh, that can be quite destabilising, can't it? Absolutely, and um, in no sense is one trying to imply that by adjusting um, d defence policies, military strategies for the longer term, somehow aren't going to cope with any of these problems. But we are going to need, assuming uh, climate change goes down the routes, and the timelines are very important here, if things happen very, very, very slowly, then everything is likely to evolve, not necessarily with the big crises, but that doesn't seem to be the way it's going. Um, uh, the, um, the, the military will be needed to deal with immediate problems as they come up, and population um, movement is clearly one of them, whether it's merely um, uh, helping to police immigration. Um, but more, more so, it's collapse of states. It's, uh, it's yeah. all the implications it's of that. It's failed state, it, isn't it? It's nations such as the United Kingdom, which already has a, rec a record of force for good um, mm -hmm. interventions to try and help out, whether wisely or unwisely, and there'll be a bigger onus to do that for countries which may albeit they have big problems with flooding like Britain, uh, in other ways uh, Britain might become a rather um, more Mediterranean, rather pleasant place to live. Hang on, hang on, hang on <laughs> Eric, uh, this question for you am I just um, am I just seizing on the do you think I'm just seizing <laughs> on the fact that we've got Copenhagen going on and that I happen to think that security is an important part of climate change, or, or you know, is that think, all it is? I think it's important, actually, and and, 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 and I'm very pleased that you that you uh, that you brought it up. I mean, I mean, the, there's a big problem, I think, in the defence planning process. And I'm not changing the subject deliberately, but I think it's important um, that we have this wonderful SDR, Strategic Defence Review. We've had various finely calibrated policy statements that we have these forces and they can do these things for this period. And we haven't played a blind bit of notice to the sorts of operation that we actually were, were planning to do, hence overstretch of this kind of thing. We, campaigns have gone on much longer than expected. And therefore, you know, it's marvellous having a defence planning, planning, planning process, but the politicians, it goes back to what we were saying right at the start, this disconnect between the politicians and the defence... Uh, 
defence planners. We have paid very little attention to the small print of the Defence Review saying, look, this is what we can do with the forces that we've, uh, that we've got. And, and we've done more than that, or tried to, and the result has been a, Politicians a set of problems. Politicians take too many long-term views, can they, Michael? Well, perhaps, perhaps well, that's inherent, yeah. They're, they're unlikely to do so, but uh, uh, for the United Kingdom in particular, I mean, uh, defence policy and longer-term strategy has to deal with a wide range of options and, uh, and a wide range of possibilities, and the extremes of climate change are in that. The question is how likely are those options, because you can't cover every option, but you need to be able to cover the span of the more likely options uh, for the future. And uh, the last Strategic Defence Review provided capabilities designed to do that. You can't predict what will happen, but at least you've got a tool that can be used for lots of different things, not necessarily bogged down in Afghanistan or Iraq uh, for the longer term, and that wasn't the intention. Uh, there wasn't the intention to just go around removing regimes, but at least you've got tools that can be used for lots of different things, whether it's Sierra Leone or whether it's um, rebuilding a bridge in or providing a bridge in, in, in Crocomouth. Yeah. Yep. Can I just uh, move on from that? Uh, and it is that being in Afghanistan for much longer than you ever expected to have to be. Um, I was thinking um, when we were waiting for President Obama to come up with his strategy. Um, I was one thing that I read that he'd said, and he said, I don't want to be going to Walter Reed, and that's the military hospital, I don't want to be going to Walter Reed for the next eight years. Eric, it tells you something, oh. isn't it, that you don't normally read in presidential statements? That, uh, that's right, and it's, and it's interesting. There was this big argument about casualty aversion in the United States, I remember, and people like Colin Gray argued that actually the Who's Americans... Who's Colin Gray? Uh, our audience? A distinguished, a distinguished uh, a professor of, of security studies at, uh, at the University of Reading, former colleague of mine at Hull, and, and, and he said, actually, the Americans are not casualty averse when they can see that it's necessary, and also for relatively short periods. Uh, but we're getting into, into, into a situation, and actually, it's happening in Britain, as well, actually, this you know the the, the media playing up all these uh, all the bodies being brought back, etc., and rather negative reporting in in many ways. Um, and it, this is a problem that can democracies stick stick the long haul and a constant drain of casualties. You know, I'm, but I'm coming back to this individual. Um, I still have this sort of it's not a very clearly thought out hypothesis, and that is the November last year, that the American people voted for our president, uh, you know, the Western world's president, mm -hmm. as simple as that. Um, and I was thinking, in 92 days in his, dis his deliberations, 92 days they took, uh, of intense, methodical, rigorous, earnest, and at times must have been deeply frustrating um, for nearly everybody involved, 36 intelligence reports, 8 thousand, mm -hmm. eight thousand pages of evidence that was presented to the president. I wonder if you read them all. Uh, well, I don't know, but I mean, if that is the scale of the operation, it isn't just simply, <coughs> oh, he's dithering, is it? No, it's, it's not. He's read more than his previous. I think, he, I think that's absolutely true, and I think he has taken it extremely seriously, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strength of the man that he has done, and he has thought about it, and he hasn't rushed into things like his predecessor did, uh, and and that's all to, all to the good. Um, but I think that that um, 
the big question is, can democracies face long-haul operations? And if we can't... We is that what he was thinking, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, yes, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in his speech, he had the difficult job of, first of all, addressing the American people, making clear to them that this wasn't forever, uh, at the same time pointing out to, and, and to Karzai that there were deadlines that he would have to meet, at the same time pointing out to the Taliban that uh, they, didn't, they couldn't just hang on in there and sooner or later it would all be over and they could move back in. And it's a very difficult balance there. But this, the, these remarks in the speech about bodies and everything else is to mm. confirm in the minds of the American people that they're looking to something that be concluded. And to achieve that with democracies, you need to have events, etc., which show evidence of progress. Exactly. Yes. It doesn't mean that they can't be there for a long time, but you've got to see progress. That's not what happened in Vietnam. And right. the dateline of July 2001, uh, Wait, 2011, 11. I beg your pardon, uh, working towards something uh, that could demonstrate that we have achieved something by then. He didn't say we'll be pulling out then. He said that was when we would start withdrawing, uh, assuming the conditions on the ground were right. And that's been reinforced by um, the next day uh, by the Secretary for Defence. We're led quite, others. Julian, we're led quite different, you know, aren't we? Oh, yes, but I, I, I think the interesting point is whether you can control how the opposition, i.e., the Taliban, are going to operate. Because Vietnam is a very good example of how the opposition were able to inflict such casualties on the Americans that the American people got sick of it in the end. And, and they, to a degree, are the people who call the shots. That's mm. the problem. So it's not something where you can say, we'll, we'll manage it so that it'll get better. But the rethinking, Michael, I just I want to move on to a finally, finally. Um, the rethinking struck me that, you know, when this started out, with President Obama, he was talking about this war of necessity. I didn't hear that mentioned at all uh, in the past two weeks, once he'd come to a conclusion. What he did do is link it to 2001 quite clearly, that this is, uh, it is concluding what began as an operation of self-defence uh, at that particular time. He also made very important statements, which he's done before, but in a particularly concise way, about a multilateral approach, about the fact that military is not the solution to world problems. It's something that is used in combination with all the other instruments and all of these things that, as you've already said, everyone in the West would want to hear. Um, and it really did, to my mind, mm. set the grand strategic background for a much more uh, robust and sustained coalition operation if people would listen to it. Right. Well, listen, we've got a minute and three quarters or something. Um, to show that SITREP always gets to the big stories, um, I mention, I give you the name Tiger Woods. Um... I, I was thinking, uh, the Tiger Woods moment, whatever that is, I've just been reading in the New York Times, so it must be true, um, a United States survey says cheating sex by politicians get more thrills than it was just call, called a Tiger Woods moment. Now, um, in other words, celebs are expected to do this, uh, to break the rules sometimes, but Eric... Uh, politicians or, more importantly, military leaders not so? Well, nowadays, uh, that seems to be the case, but in the past it wasn't. Uh, Nelson and Lady Hamilton, for example. King Charles II. I mean, we have frigates named after his, his mistresses. Uh, 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 Which ones? Fact, the Duke class. Oh, right. Because he made them, he made them duchesses, and they, and they, and uh, Kendall. I, it's very interesting, actually, that 
Um, the first of a big class of warships built in the 1670s was named after the king's illegitimate son, Lennox. And it's quite remarkable, actually. And people seem to have a much more sort of balanced attitude in those days. Mm, uh, Gillian, we, we would prefer that the, these dalliances or <laughs> moments remain with the celebs rather than with our military leaders, or don't we really mind? Well, I don't really mind as long as the military leaders are efficient and, and, and they're, and they're sort what? of... Ex- at their job. Oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Provided that, provided their dalliances don't get in the way of, of how they perform Michael, their job. Ten seconds. Can I, you think of someone? I can. Re- well, there are awful lot of people. Yes. <laughs> um, um, there's uh, uh, former chief of defence staff, etc. But that I think is more because of his situation in the, in the politics, less his utility as a senior military officer, to be honest. Right, that's enough of this. We're going. That's it for this week. My thanks to Michael Codner, Eric Grove and Julian Thompson. We'll be here same time next week at four o'clock UK time. Try bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary's in the hut. <laughs>